0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? Or just starting over? On the
1: road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz.
0: And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, And welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we are concluding our two-part episode on the renowned poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. She was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. She was one of the Guggenheim Foundation's judges for its poetry fellowships. And she was also wildly best-selling. She managed to sell tens of thousands of copies of her poetry and make huge amounts of money off of it in the middle of the Great Depression, which seems like a hard thing to do. Her work was so popular that every new book that she published sent her on a reading tour around the country. And in 1940, she was also elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 1931, uh, artist Georgia O'Keeffe wrote a letter to Edna St. Vincent Millay. And in this letter, she told a story about a hummingbird that got trapped in her studio So she caught the hummingbird, but every time she opened her hand just a little bit to try to get a look at the hummingbird, it would break its way free and then go bash itself against the windowpane. She described it as being just so full of life that it couldn't be contained, no matter how she tried. It took her four tries before she was actually able to get the bird outside because every time it would break out of her grasp and then just go hurl itself against the windows. Georgia told Vincent that she was like the hummingbird and that if Vincent didn't get what she was saying with this description, then surely her husband would. I think that characterizes her character pretty well. And the first half of our episode today really, or the previous one, the one from earlier this week, looked at her early life chronologically. For her later life, we're instead going to sort of organize it thematically. Uh, Going chronologically would be a little kind of a slog. So we're instead going to kind of talk our way through some common themes in her life after she got married to her husband, whose name was Eugen Boisevang.
0: Yeah, so we uh, left off right after they had been married. And for a while after their honeymoon, Vincent and Eugen rented a house in Greenwich Village. But eventually, Vincent wanted to be somewhere quieter where she could still be to host friends, but could also really focus on her writing.
1: In March of 1925, they found a 700-acre farm for sale in New York, and they bought it for $9,000. Vincent named it Steepletop, and that was named after a kind of flower that grew there. This was a steeple bush, also known as hardhack. It has these pink kind of pointy flowers. The property was in really poor condition, so Vincent and Eugen put a huge amount of time and work into actually making it into a functioning farm.
0: And it had an outdoor bar where, in their words, the flowers were watered with gin. Uh, Freestanding doors led to what Vincent called her garden rooms. And they later put in a spring-fed swimming pool where bathing suits were not allowed. It was uh, only skinny dipping. And they also bought and built a barn from a kit that they purchased from Sears. They raised animals in addition to the food crops that they raised there.
1: They built a riding cabin for Vincent and this was set back among some pine trees when it burned down to everything but the stove they built another one Vincent spaced out the windows so that she could see who was in the pool without easily being seen herself because the pine trees would block the view from most of the places people could stand in the swimming pool so she would look out the windows to see who was down at the pool and at the bar. And then she would decide whether she wanted to come down for happy hour or stay in the cabin riding.
0: That sounds sort of like a glorious life, doesn't it? Like
1: It really does. Uh, the whole time we were there, because this, this whole episode comes after a visit to Steepletop. And the whole time we were there, I was like, you know, if this were simultaneously walkable to stuff like stores and places to get groceries, this would be great. But... It's a little isolated.
0: And apart from some time that they spent traveling, Steepletop was really Vincent and Eugen's home for the rest of their lives.
1: While Vincent did do a lot of work in the garden, she she had almost nothing to do with most of the household duties that would have been more typical and expected of a wife at the time. Eugen's whole goal in their relationship was to make sure Vincent had whatever she needed to write. So the house was fully staffed. Vincent said that she likes to walk into her dining room as though it were a hotel.
0: Well, that's stark contrast to when she was a child and basically took care of her entire home for her mother and sisters. Absolutely. Uh, Steepletop was also a home to their friends, some of whom came to stay for weeks at a time. Arthur Ficke and Gladys Brown eventually bought property nearby, and they named their property Hardhack.
1: At first, Eugen's money was what paid for their life at Steepletop. But Vincent's writing eventually started to bring in an income of her own. Poetry made her really rich. As someone who majored in poetry in college, this is bizarre to me. This is
0: a super unique situation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, poetry did used to be a whole lot more popular uh, in America and in other parts of the world than it is right now, but maybe not to the point that people would really be rich. But seriously, poetry made her very rich, but they also spent their money very freely. So they didn't always have a lot of cash on hand. Some years, steeple-top actually turned a profit, and other years it was more like a tax write-off to kind of buffer this income that was coming in from her royalties.
0: And just to kind of, you know make a clear picture of how much money she was making as a writer. It was a lot. Uh, they actually were able to buy an island of their own off the coast of Maine at the height of the Great Depression. Of course, it was not a terribly expensive island. It was $750. But, but that was still so, seven,
1: $750 extra dollars to buy an island with during the Great Depression. Yeah,
0: that's a lot at that time, for sure.
1: Yeah. So if we left Vincent and Eugene's story here... Their life at Steepletop would sort of sound like a happy, semi-Bohemian extension of what their life had been like in Greenwich Village. So settled and happier, but still really full of drinking and a series of lovers for both of them. Um, but as Vincent got older, her life got a little more difficult and a little more nuanced.
0: Vincent's life and work had really made her a role model for women. She lived a life of personal autonomy and sexual freedom, which were completely unique at the time. And this is one of the reasons why her poetry was so incredibly successful. Women flocked to it and its themes of love, sexual liberation and living life your own way. So
1: all of these themes made a lot of her work implicitly feminist, but very little of what she wrote in her early career was overtly political On occasion, she did call out the hypocrisy of being referred to as a woman poet instead of just a poet, Uh, or of being, for example, honored at a university only to then be sent off to a social that was, quote, for the wives instead of being allowed to, you know, hang out with the other honorees. But for the most part, she just lived as she wanted to live, and then other people were inspired by doing that. She was sort of being an activist by example, rather than being a, an outwardly demonstrative activist for most of her life.
0: And two notable exceptions to this came a little later in her life. The first was the Sacco and Vanzetti case. Uh, there's actually a previous episode in the archive that Katie and Sarah did about them. But Sacco and Vanzetti were Italian anarchists who had been accused of murder, and they were tried and sentenced to die in 1921.
1: There were layers and layers of unfairness and injustice about the trial, and the sentence was one that divided Americans. Intellectuals, artists, writers, and others flocked to support the two men, and the effort to get their sentence overturned went on for years. Vincent
0: was on the side of clemency. In 1927, toward the end of the battle for the two men's freedom, she and Eugene went to Boston to march and protest, and she wrote a poem entitled Justice Denied in Massachusetts. While they were in Boston,
1: Eugen bailed out demonstrators who had previously been arrested. Vincent also marched herself and was, along with other protesters who were marching with her, arrested
0: herself. And when Vincent was freed, she was granted an audience with the governor, and she took advantage of it to plead for the men to be spared. In the end, though, they were hanged, and Vincent's own trial became news, with the media calling her an American Joan of Arc, and she was eventually acquitted.
1: Vincent's writing took another political turn during World War II. Earlier in her career, themes of pacifism had been woven into some of her work. But as cities in Europe started to fall to Hitler, her views really shifted. This was especially true as German troops invaded the Netherlands, which put Eugen, her husband's own family, at risk.
0: Vincent was speaking and writing in favor of going to war long before the United States did. And during World War II, some of this work was definitely propaganda. A lot of it resonated with the public, but reviews from literary circles were pretty scathing. Her literary reputation didn't entirely recover from this period during her lifetime.
1: Before we moved on to one of the most notable and also kind of ill-fated love affairs during her later life, let's take a brief moment. And talk about a word from a sponsor.
0: Stupendous.
1: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all.
0: Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
1: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Miss in History Class, or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there, too.
0: Hey, guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1: So to get back to Vincent and Eugen, we're not describing their relationship as polyamorous, since that's not a term that was coined until the late 20th century, long after both of them had died. But their marriage was definitely not monogamous on either side. Their relationship was meant to be unpossessive and welcoming of other people. And for Vincent in particular, the excitement and passion of a new relationship often seemed to make her poetry a lot better. It really inspired what she was writing about. And as we've said before, Eugen really wanted Vincent to have whatever she needed so that she could write more poetry.
0: And guests at Steeple Top, it will probably be no surprise, included Vincent's past lovers, both male and female. Eugen would make himself scarce when he felt like, you know, it was time for him to step out. One of Vincent's most
1: notable relationships during her marriage to Eugene was with the poet George Dillon. Like Vincent, George was a gifted poet. He won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. He also won two Guggenheim Fellowships. He was the editor for Poetry Magazine, which is a very prominent and established poetry journal. The two of them also worked together to translate Baudelaire's Flowers of Evil into English.
0: George and Vincent met after a poetry reading that she gave in 1928. And at the time, he was only 21 and Vincent was 36. And Eugene at this point was 48. The relationship inspired Vincent's sonnet sequence called Fatal Interview. Some of their letters also survive, and they tell the story of a passionate, ecstatic, and erotic love affair. It bordered on obsession, with Vincent trying to figure out any way she could for them to see one another.
1: It was also a relationship that really threatened to undo Vincent and Eugen's marriage at a couple of points. It led to the one of the longer separations of their lives when Vincent and Eugen both went to Europe, but Eugen went back home alone so that Vincent could be alone with George.
0: Vincent wrote to Eugen while she was away, and her letters seemed to try to reassure him that he was loved and that she missed him. But he wrote her far more than she wrote to him. And it seemed as though she loved Eugen, but she was in love with George. This
1: sort of disparity started to weigh on Eugen, and he became increasingly worried that his wife was never coming back home. When she finally did tell him that she was ready to come home again, he was elated and he went to Europe to meet her rather than waiting for her
0: in New York. Vincent's relationship with George did continue off and on for years, and it eventually became a very tumultuous one.
1: Yeah, and it did ultimately end. And her her sonnet sequence, "Fatal Interview," kind of chronicles the the rise and fall of this kind of extremely passionate but also kind of rocky relationship. Uh, Vincent also seemed almost beset by tragedies later on in her life.
0: Her friend and colleague Eleanor Wiley died in 1928. And Vincent received word about it just as she was about to take the stage for a reading at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Instead of reading her own work, Vincent recited Eleanor's from memory. Vincent's
1: mother, Cora, got sick in 1931 and died that February, uh, after Vincent had received word that she wasn't doing well, but before she could get home to see her. They brought her body home to Steepletop, and it had to be brought by sleigh over the last leg of the journey because the snow was too deep. Cora's casket lay in the withdrawing room surrounded by flowers for four days while they literally blasted a grave into the frozen granite on the property at Steepletop. Vincent and her sisters all felt tremendously guilty over their mother's death. Although her acute illness seemed pretty sudden, she had been complaining of being vaguely unwell for a couple of years, and they all felt like they should have done more to help her and possibly prevent her death. Uh, they wound up sort of saluting Eugen's mother uh, at the same time when they had a a graveside service for Vincent's mother because his mother had also died the week before.
0: Vincent actually uh, reconnected with her father when he uh, reached out to her in 1935. He was, in fact, writing to ask her for money. Vincent actually sent the money and she ended up providing for him until he died years later. The next year, Vincent
1: and Eugene were in Sanibel Island, Florida. They checked into the hotel, and they went directly to the beach to look for seashells. Vincent really loved seashells, and there's still a huge collection of them surviving in the dining room at Steepletop. While they were out, the hotel burned to the ground, taking with it everything that they had brought with them. This included a personal copy of a 17th century book, the manuscript for Vincent's next book and the manuscript for another book that she had been working on. It took her more than a year to try to reconstruct all of this writing from memory.
0: Oh, that's hard to think about. Vincent's younger sister, Kathleen, died of acute alcoholism in 1943. And she was also, by the end of her life, experiencing some degree of mental illness. At this point, a huge rift had
1: developed between Kathleen and Vincent, Kathleen was also a poet, and she just could not get out from under Vincent's shadow. She had also started to feel like her sister had stolen all of her best ideas and made them famous in her own work. She became kind of obsessed with the idea that, uh, that her sister had done her wrong in some way. She'd also been asking Eugen and Vincent for money really often before her death. And Eugen often felt like she was asking for money and then squandering it. So she would ask for money for medical bills, but then spend it on something else and then need more money for the medical bills as long as or as well as more money for something else. Uh, so they were really kind of estranged by the time she died.
0: In 1945, Arthur Ficke, Vincent's longtime friend and occasional lover, died of throat cancer, and he was buried on his property at Hardhack that was nearby to Steepletop.
1: On top of all of these personal losses and tragedies, Vincent herself really started to struggle with alcoholism and drug addiction later on in her life.
0: She really wasn't in good health for much of her adult life. She had ongoing problems uh, with both her digestive and her reproductive systems. She experienced frequent headaches, And according to one story, during the 1920s, she was talking to a psychologist at a cocktail party about them. and he was a Freudian and began to ask questions that suggested that he thought she might be a lesbian, and she said, "Oh, you mean I'm a homosexual?" Of course I am, and heterosexual, too, but what's that got to do with my headache?" I love that story. I do too.
1: <laughs> in the later part of nineteen twenty eight, the King's henchman, which was an opera for which Vincent had written the libretto, was being performed in New York. A winter storm hit steepletop and she didn't want to miss the show, so Eugen decided to take her to the train station in a sled. He misjudged a gap in the hedge along the way and a branch hit Vincent in the eye and scratched her cornea.
0: As you can imagine, that is immensely painful, and medical care for such an injury at the time was focused on killing the pain rather than treating the injury. And she wound up having trouble with her sight, unable to read or write for weeks, and even after the the eye had healed, that injury really made her chronic headache problem even worse. She had another accident in 1936.
1: She was leaning against the car door while Eugen was driving, and he went around a sharp curve, which caused the door to fly open. She fell from the car and rolled downhill for a while before she managed to grab some vegetation and stop herself. This was another injury that prevented her from riding at all while it healed.
0: By the late 1930s, Eugen was describing Vincent as too sick to leave her bed a lot of the time
1: she really blamed the pain from the accident for starting her addiction to morphine and other painkillers. Although, that doesn't quite add up, because in the intervening years, there aren't many references to that pain in her letters, her diaries, and her medical records. But regardless, she was eventually taking enormous, enormous doses of morphine. She was also combining it with alcohol and other drugs, she was taking far more morphine than Arthur Ficke was in his last days as a cancer patient, for example. You know, usually when someone uh, at this point was uh, in the end stages of cancer and being treated with morphine, they didn't really pay a lot of attention to the dosages. In some ways, this is still true today. She was taking like multiple times more than his, doses, his dosage was for end stage cancer pain. Um, she would also take her first dose of morphine within minutes of getting up in the morning.
0: Eugen tried to get her to wean herself off of these drugs, uh, even taking morphine himself and reducing his own dosages to see what she was going through and as proof that it could be done. Vincent wound up in inpatient treatment for her addictions multiple times. She also had a nervous breakdown in 1944. And at one point, she, she and Eugen retired to Ragged Island so she could try to work her way through recovery there.
1: That was the island that they had purchased during the Great Depression. Uh, in addition to this drug addiction, Vincent was also an alcoholic, eventually to the point of having alcohol-induced blackouts on a pretty regular basis.
0: And even as she slowly reduced her morphine intake, largely by replacing it with other drugs, she continued to drink and drink heavily until the end of her life. and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. My name is Sammy J.
1: I have been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We have some incredible guests this season, including hitmaker Megan Trainer, the amazing Kesha, Grammy-winning producer Phineas, YouTube sensation Liza Koshy, Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Julia Michaels, the boy band sensation Why Don't We?, and many more. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1949, Eugen was diagnosed with lung cancer. An x-ray had actually revealed a spot on one of his lungs a long while before that, but he had ignored it. Everybody sort of assumed that it was tuberculosis, and he really insisted that the more important thing was for him to take care of Vincent.
0: He made it through surgery to remove the diseased lung, but he ended up dying of a cerebral hemorrhage on August 29th.
1: In the aftermath of Eugen's death, Vincent had to be hospitalized, and she finally convinced her friends and family that she absolutely had to return to Steepletop. The only way she was going to make it through was to write her way through her grief while she was there. So she had the phone reconnected so people could check on her, and then she went back to Steepletop to live alone.
0: On October 19th of 1950, John Pinney, who worked on the property, was bringing firewood when he saw Vincent on the floor at the foot of the steps. It is not entirely clear what happened. There was a bottle of wine and a wine glass on the stairs, and she had clearly broken her neck when she fell. According to her obituary in the New York Times, it was a heart attack. Vincent was 58, and Eugene had been dead for a little over a year.
1: Her ashes are interred next to Eugen's at the end of a trail that's now known as the Poetry Trail at Steepletop. Cora's gravesite is there also, as well as Norma's, that was Vincent's sister, and Charles, who was Norma's husband. They are all sort of uh, collected together as, as five gravesites at the end of this trail.
0: After Vincent's death, her sister Norma moved into Steepletop with her husband, the artist Charles Ellis. Norma kept her sister's things as untouched as possible. She kept her own cosmetics and personal items in a shoebox so they would never get mixed with her sisters. And Norma chose to hang her clothes on the shower curtain rod in the bathroom. It is a very large bathroom. There was a lot of space there, but still, she would not use the closet because she uh, seemed to intuit that her sister's home was going to be important and that she should preserve everything in it as it was.
1: Based on Vincent's income as a poet versus her expenses, it seems as though she would have been in a position to leave kind of an endowment to keep the place running after her death. After all, she'd been seeing huge sales of poetry in the middle of the Great Depression. Um... She was making between $17,000 and $21,000 a year during the late 30s. There's not really a great way to put that into today's dollars, but it was easily the same as having an income in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year.
0: And she was also writing more commercial work at that time under the pseudonym of Nancy Boyd. So she was getting income from that as well.
1: So even with medical bills paying for medical care for Vincent's father and sister and their generally free spending lifestyle, it seems as though they should have been pretty financially stable. In reality, though, Vincent would ask for a generous advance from her publisher for her next book, and that would let her pay off the debts she had incurred since publishing the previous book. So she was always sort of living off of loans from her publisher for work that she hadn't done yet.
0: Biographer Daniel Mark Epstein's hypothesis, which is supported by letters and some other documents, but it is not conclusively proven, is that before the Great Depression, Vincent invested most of her money in a thoroughbred farm and continued to do so well into the 1930s. She was definitely
1: known to love horses and horse racing, but this paper trail is kind of scanty and convoluted. And it's also possible that she really wanted to keep the thoroughbred farm, which was being used, of course, to raise racehorses. A secret, because her father's gambling, which we mentioned in the previous episode, had been so detrimental to her family.
0: And then the war also intervened. Uh, So some of Eugen's money was actually back in Holland, and all of his assets there wound up being frozen. So it wasn't like they had access to any of that. So today, Steepletop is still standing in Osterlitz,
1: New York. It's run by the Edna St. Vincent Malay Society, and it's open for tours from the end of May to the end of October. Uh, because the, the, you know, they were not really financially flush at the time of Vincent's death, the Society is raising money to restore some of the rooms that aren't currently open for public viewing. Um, you are able to see parts of the home if you tour it, but not everything, because there are rooms that still really need some work. They also have a new head gardener who's working from journals to reconstruct the property's landscaping and gardens, and it's pretty much all donation-supported. Um, there's not really a, you know, a fund from the author's estate that's keeping things going at this point. Uh, but if you are interested in going there, it's pretty awesome. It's two and a half hours from New York City and two and a half hours from Boston. So, uh, you can get to it pretty easily from a couple of places. I'd say it's probably safe to
0: say it is on Tracy's recommended visiting list.
1: Oh yeah, it was, it was lovely. We toured the house and we toured the gardens and then we walked on the poetry trail, which is the trail that goes out to the gravesites and it has, uh, like little plaques along the way that have poems about what you're seeing there in the landscape and, and the vegetation that's growing there. So it's really lovely. Um, it's also, we also went pretty much the first weekend of their season. And so there was nobody there, but, but like me and Patrick and a couple of docents. Nice. Yeah, it was a a very lovely trip. Do you also have a spot of listener mail for us? I do. This is actually a very lengthy letter, so I am only going to read about the first half of it. It is from Stephanie, and Stephanie wrote to us after our Deaf President Now episode. Um, And she wrote to us, and uh, she starts off with some talk about how she has heard the name of uh, Gallaudet or Gallaudet or Gallaudet University pronounced, which... We've gotten a couple of notes about that, and I keep we we now have collected I think four <laughs> different pronunciations for people how people say the name of it. So you have options. <laughs> uh, yeah. So she says there is an interesting story that we were told about Gallaudet going to Europe to learn sign language, uh, and that was the elder Gallaudet who went to try to find out how you know some some information about the good the best ways to teach uh, deaf people. He went to several places that were either based on the oral tradition or private academies that would only teach him sign language for a price. So he was about to leave without accomplishing his goal when he met someone from a deaf institution in France who invited him to come to their school and learn French sign language free of charge. He met a deaf French scholar, Laurent Clerc, who came back with him to help set up deaf education in America. To this day, there are many signs that are based on French concepts in American sign language yet British sign language is very different from the American. I heard you say that the differences between those of the oral tradition and the culturally deaf are not as much of an issue now as cochlear implants. I agree with you that it is not much as much of a national issue as before, but I do not think I can agree that it is no longer an issue in the deaf community. Uh, I'm going to pause there and clarify what I was trying to say, uh, which is that the thing that is not so much of an issue is whether to teach children who are born unable to hear now uh, sign language like that's not there's not really an ongoing debate about that the much bigger debate is, is whether a child who is born now not able to hear should have a cochlear implant or not right um, to get back to the letter I was an interpreter for the deaf for several years and though it has been about 10 years since I interpreted I do not think things have changed that drastically since I was in touch with the deaf community I had learned sign language as a child as I had a personal friend that was deaf He had about 35% hearing in one ear and almost none in the other, yet he was sent away to a boarding school for the deaf in Missouri and learned sign language. And so even though he could hear a little, he communicated through American Sign Language and not the PSE or Pigeon Signed English that oral deaf students used. Bernie was able to interpret for his friends, though, since he could tell better when someone was speaking and he could read lips very well. Even though he was so adept in the hearing world, his communication was truly in the syntax of ASL and not English, which is another reason that closed captioning does not help many of the culturally deaf, since they do not think in English syntax. Therefore, the words that they are seeing don't make sense because they're not in the right order, and many of them don't read English very well. I've worked in the public school system and the college system interpreting for the deaf, and one of the main classes the culturally deaf must attend is ESOL or English of speaker, English for speakers of other languages. I remember having many conversations with deaf friends, coworkers, and clients who expressed passionate opinions on each side of the deaf culture issue. There were those who absolutely did not want to look strange and so wanted to keep the sign language interpretation very low key. And those who did not want to see anything but the lecture signed and nothing extra like jokes or comments from the hearing students. The two factions were very much at odds with each other. Like I said, it has been 10 years, but I really think there is a very definite divide even now between those two communities. Uh, and then I'm going to conclude with a story that she shares uh, uh, before the letter goes on. and she says one time I was interpreting for a personal friend who was deaf and also a co-worker. She was a guest at a women's club, and the object was to educate the ladies about deaf culture. One of the questions she was asked was, "How do you handle your disability? I think the lady wanted the deaf friend to explain if she felt living in a hearing world was difficult or if she thought she handled it well. I am not handicapped, she shot back when I signed the question to her. You are handicapped, she signed. I can communicate with you, but you cannot communicate with me. <laughs> uh, that is where I'm going to end the letter. Um, <laughs> partly because uh, that's only about half of the, the letter. She had all kinds of awesome, awesome information in it. Uh, but that's similar to a story that Iking King Jordan told in the uh, the address that he gave at my alma mater that I saw um, where he was talking about when people who can hear come to Gallaudet to uh, to visit and they go to the restaurant on campus at the school. Like a hearing person is definitely the person who's in a position of having a handicap because the cook is deaf and the servers are all deaf. And the, <laughs> the, when he was there, he was not sure if they still did it. But when he was there, the the way that they dealt with this was that they would leave pads of note paper on the tables for the hearing people. So it was he was definitely talking about how disability is is contextual. And there are definitely circumstances where a person that could be described as, quote, having a disability is absolutely not disabled in any way. Um so yeah, I really appreciated having that story from Stephanie. Uh, if you would like to write to us you can. We're at history podcast at howstuffworks com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash missed in history and on Twitter at Mist in History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory dot com and we are on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash mist in history. If you would like to learn more about something that came up in the episode today, you can come to HowStuffWorks and you can put the word addiction into the search bar. You will find the article How Addiction Works. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You can listen to archives of every episode and see our show notes and all kinds of other stuff at MissDenHistory.com. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Rome and Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price. As we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This time tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.